But I wanted to start today by just backing up a little bit and, and looking at the promises that God gave in His Word of the, the Christ who would come. And so that, that's going to be our focus here this morning. We're going to be looking uh, at, uh, mostly we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. Because what people sometimes don't realize is that Jesus didn't just show up on the scene uh, unannounced, but God had actually been uh, preparing the way for centuries. He had been giving uh, little pictures here and there all throughout history, uh, pointing to the time when the Savior would come into the world. So that's going to be our, our focus here this morning, looking at the promise of Christ. So let me just pray real quickly, and then we're going to jump right into the story, all right? So Lord, we, we thank you that we have this opportunity this week to be together. Lord, I thank you for every person that's uh, seated out here in the congregation this morning, everyone that's going to uh, pass through the gate this week, come onto the site. Lord, because we know that you're here, and we know that you're at work. And we pray today as we look at the prophecies of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. We pray, Lord, that our faith would be strengthened and that we would know the certainty of the things that we have believed, that we wouldn't be shaken or, or wavering in our faith or uh, anything like that, Lord, but that our foundation would become even more firm through our time today and through our consideration of the life of Christ this week. So, Lord, bless now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, the greatest story ever told is the life of Jesus, but the story of Jesus didn't begin with his birth. Now, of course, that's not true for the rest of us. For every other person, our, our story began uh, when we were born. But, but this is where Jesus is unique. This is where he's distinct. So the story of Jesus didn't begin at his birth, but it began long before in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. For it was there in the Garden of Eden after man had sinned and brought the sentence of death upon himself and the rest of creation that God made a promise. God made a promise all the way back in your Bible, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God gives the first promise that he is going to fix what has now become broken. God is going to remedy the problem that has arisen through the entrance of sin into the world. And there in Genesis 3.15, we read that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And as we translate that out, and as we add to it the, the bigger picture of prophecy that would unfold as time went on, it translates to this, a virgin will conceive and bear a son who will destroy the devil and all of his works. You see, the Bible is 
among other things, it's what we call a progressive revelation. So the further you go in the biblical history, the, the clearer the picture becomes. But this is where it starts. It starts with this promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The rest of the Bible and history itself is the story of the working out of this promise. So this is the grand story. This is the the great story of the ages. It is the story of stories. You know, everybody likes a story, and we all like a good story, and we really like those stories of, um, you know, a, a hero that comes along to rescue people who are, you know, being beaten down and, and oppressed by some uh, tyrant. You know, we, we love those kind of stories to see that there's a champion that arises and, and brings uh, liberty to those that have been bound, but also brings justice and, and judgment to the harsh oppressor. We love those kinds of stories. And the reality is all of those stories that we love so much they really have, whether we know it or not, they've borrowed from this story. This is the original story. This is the, the story of stories, so to speak. And so as we even look at our, our history, from the mythological figures of ancient times to the superheroes of today's blockbuster films, all of them uh, have borrowed certain elements from what C.S. Lewis called the myth that is true. That's what C.S. Lewis called the gospel, the myth that is true. He put it like this. He said, now the story of Christ is simply the true myth, a myth working on us the same way as others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. See, it's, it's that great story, like one that we would read in a book or one that we would maybe see uh, on the screen, but this is the real one. This is the real story that, that all of these others have borrowed from. Not only did these things really happen, as Lewis said, and the things that we're going to be talking about this week are things like the virgin birth of Christ uh, the miracles of Christ, the, the amazing teaching of Jesus through the parables and things like that. Uh, but then, of course, we go to his uh, substitutionary death. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at his resurrection and his uh, conquering of the grave and then his ascension into heaven with his promise to return and establish a universal kingdom of righteousness and peace. Not only did all of this happen, but here's my main point today, all of this was prophesied to happen. You see, all of it was told in advance. God laid out the story before the story was told in actuality, in in real time. And so, it's important especially in these days, that we be clear on this matter. Because there's uh, tons of confusion, obviously, about Jesus in the culture today, and there's a a lot of theories that that people have uh, concerning who he was and and what he did. 
but what we need to be clear about is this. Jesus did not simply rise out of first century Judaism as a charismatic revolutionary figure whose primary, uh, whose primary passion or objective was to bring about social justice. That's kind of a picture that we see commonly painted of Jesus today. But that is not really the case. Jesus didn't simply rise up out of first century Judaism. Jesus came into the world from outside of it. You see, he preexisted. He came into the world. None of us came into the world. We came into existence at conception. But Jesus preexisted, and he came into the world at this specific time, and he came in fulfillment of a large number of prophecies the Jewish people had hung their hopes on for centuries. A large number of prophecies that the Jewish people had hung their hopes on for centuries. Dean Farrar, in his great volume entitled The Life of Christ, he wrote this. He said, we are informed by Tacitus, by Suetonius, and by Josephus that there prevailed throughout the entire East at this time an intense conviction derived from ancient prophecies that soon a powerful monarch would arise in Judea and gain dominion over the world. There is ample proof both in Jewish and pagan writings that a guilty and weary world was dimly expecting the advent of its deliverer. This was the literature of the time, and that expectation was rooted in the prophetic scriptures. So this was the climate at the time. Uh, not, not only the Jews, but the, the pagan nations around them, there was an expectation that a deliverer would come, and it was rooted in those prophecies that had been given uh, all of those uh, centuries earlier. So what I want to do now is I want to turn to a few of the promises and the prophecies themselves and see what God told us concerning Christ. What would it be that the people of that time would have been expecting? And so I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to make, script, make references to the Scriptures and quote them. If you have a Bible and you're fast enough and you want to follow along, you can do that. But I would encourage you to, um, you know, to at least take some notes and, and write these Scriptures down because this is such a, a powerful um, support for our own faith. And it's also uh, a powerful weapon that we can use in communicating the truth to others to uh, assure people that, look, Jesus, like I said earlier, he didn't just appear out of nowhere. He came in fulfillment of the prophecies. So I'll begin with this. What, what did the prophecies uh, say, or, or what was the picture that was painted uh, concerning this deliverer, this Messiah that would come? Well, uh, it, the, the Bible was very clear, the Old Testament scriptures were very clear, that he was going to come from a certain family. Now, think about that. There's, how many families are there in the world? There are multitudes of families. There are uh, multitudes of nations and ethnicities and, of course, uh, spread all over the world, the different continents and so forth. But the Bible was very specific that the Savior, the Deliverer, would be a descendant of Abraham. 
He would be a descendant of Abraham. So that just sort of narrowed everything down to this one family. And we read in Genesis, God speaking to Abraham, he said this. He said, in your seed, in your descendant, singular, he said, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So this is where the promise began to become a little bit more defined. So God says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, but now he's getting more specific. He's telling us the family line, and it's through Abraham. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then Abraham has a descendant some centuries later named David. Uh, Scott referred to him a few moments ago, King David. We know him as King David. And the promise passes from Abraham. Abraham has uh, a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and the promises go through those two. And then uh, Jacob has 12 sons, And out of one of those 12 sons, there was Judah, and the promise was to go to Judah, and Judah had a descendant named David. And then the promise was passed on to David. And so God speaking to David, he said this, he said, I will set up your seed, again that term, your seed, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God says a descendant of David is going to sit upon David's throne and rule forever. So this is, again, more clarity being given. Now, we're also told the place where the Savior would be born. And it was through the prophet Micah. He said this in the the fifth chapter, the second verse. He said um, that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem, which was the city of David. And so we read this. It says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the thousands of Judah, just a small village, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth is from everlasting or from eternity. So we see the first thing that he's to be a descendant of Abraham, he's to be a descendant of David, he is to be born actually in the city of David. If you went around today and you asked people, um, what, who, who was born in Bethlehem? Anybody who knows anything about the Bible would say, well, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Even, they would know that even more so than they uh, would think that David was born there. And so that was the prophecy. So he would be a descendant of Abraham and David, but then the the prophecies also stated that he would be divine. He would somehow be a man who is simultaneously God. And this was the puzzling aspect of the prophecy for many, and they, they never could sort it out until it finally happened. They, they couldn't make sense of it. And, and uh, at, at one point, they even surmised that, well, maybe there's two messiahs. Maybe there's like a human one, and then maybe there's a divine one. They, they were confused about it because the Scripture seemed to say both. And so he would be a, a divine being. As we've already seen from Micah 5.2, he would come forth from eternity, which means that he would uh, be eternal. So, of course, there's only one eternal being, that's God. So, we see here uh, the divine connection. But then, 
we're also told in the prophets, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, and we're going to look a lot at Isaiah here this morning, uh, that he would have a miraculous birth, that his birth would be unique, that there would never be anyone before him or like him who was born in this fashion. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And the New Testament interprets Emmanuel for us. It means God with us. So a virgin's going to conceive and bear a child, a son, and that son is going to be called God is with us. And then just a few chapters later in Isaiah, as the, as the same thought pattern is still being carried out, it's there that we are told that this son would not merely be the son of the virgin, but this son would be a son who is given to humanity from God. A son who is given to humanity from God whose names declare his nature. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this regarding the son. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it, it would be in the very names themselves that, that the nature of the Messiah would be declared, that he would be a descendant of Abraham and David, but there would be something unique about him. He would also somehow be God. And so the first two things, he is a descendant of Abraham and David, he is a divine being, but then thirdly, that he would have a universal and an eternal reign. The Messiah would have a universal and eternal reign. You see, this promise is for the world. This promise is for all humanity. The promise of this Savior is, was not just for one small people group, the Jewish people, but it was a promise that was going to uh, encompass the whole earth and, and really take in the whole universe and all nations, tribes, tongues, everyone is involved in this. As I already quoted from Isaiah 9, 6, uh, the government will be upon his shoulder. And it goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So there's going to be just a continual increase of his government, uh, continual peace. It's a, it's a kingdom of, uh, it's a universal, eternal kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 gives us another picture. Let me read it to you. Verses 13 and 14. Daniel has a vision. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Mark that term, Son of Man, because when you read the New Testament, you're going to find that Jesus uses that. He uses that to refer to himself more so than any other term. He uses it even more than the Son of God. And he does for one very specific reason, because it points people back to the prophecy here in Daniel. And listen to what it says again. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. His reign is universal and eternal. So these are the promises. But then, as we go further into looking at his reign, his reign is a reign of righteousness. It is a reign of peace. It is a reign of um, wholeness and, and prosperity. It is a reign of, of universal harmony. Now, think about this for a second. Um, you know, people who are into paganism or uh, new age type of thinking and all, you know, they're, they're always thinking in terms of, of, you know, a harmonious universe and all of these kinds of things and, you know, peace and prosperity and, uh, you know, the animals and the people all, uh, you know, loving each other and cuddling up together and, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things. Guess what? This is what God has planned. This is where things are headed. This is the kingdom that the Messiah is going to bring about. And so let me give you some examples again from the prophets. Jeremiah the prophet, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Oh, how we long for a righteous reign, don't we? We, we look at the world today, we see all of the unrighteousness, we see all of the inequity, we see all of the suffering and the misery and the, the tragedy, and we think, Lord, where, where, is, where is righteousness to be found? Well, Jesus is going to bring that kingdom of righteousness, and he's going to bring a kingdom of peace. Isaiah 2, 4 says, he shall judge between many nations and rebuke many people they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a kingdom of peace. The, the, the weapons of war are taken and transformed into tools to bring about agricultural prosperity. That's the picture that's being painted here. And again, this is the world is longing for peace. We're crying out for peace. We see the conflicts that are flaring up all around the world. We see the, the rise of terrorism and all of that. It's, it's so uh, frightening in so many ways, right? And it's so concerning. And of course, a few weeks back, we had the situation where uh, the number of uh, British people, they're on holiday in, uh, was it Tunisia, I think, and um, they were just, you know, gunned down and uh, just ruthlessly and senselessly murdered for some ideology. We see this kind of thing and our hearts break. I was in, just in Tesco the other day and, you know, there, uh, or no, it was just in, in the village, there's a little, little sign, you know, talking about the fact that there was a funeral in the local area for one of the persons that, that died. So we see this kind of thing, and, and our hearts cry out, Lord, is there ever going to be any peace? Yes, there is. Jesus is going to bring about a kingdom of peace. But then, as I said, there's going to be wholeness. 
The prophecy of Isaiah in the 35th chapter, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So all of the brokenness through, through sickness and disease and these kinds of things that have been the plight of humanity, these things are all going to be resolved. They're all going to be dealt with and done away with. And then even on that, that level of um, the, the harmony within all of creation, Isaiah 11, 6 and 7 says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Amazing. This is the picture. This is the kingdom that God declared would come but it doesn't come independent of this person that we're talking about. This is the kingdom that he will bring. And so these are just a sample of the many prophecies concerning the coming of Christ into the world. We could go on and on with this, but obviously we don't have time. But each of these prophecies, notice they refer to his arrival and to his reign. Each of the ones that we've looked at refer primarily to his arrival and his reign but there is another set of prophecies. There is another set of prophecies concerning Christ that we must also consider. And those are the prophecies that spoke of his rejection, his suffering, and even his death. And these were the ones that were extremely perplexing to the theological minds of the day. These were the ones that they really couldn't get their heads around because it just... Now, how can you have a... Um, you know, for them, it was a contradiction. You couldn't have a dying Messiah. That didn't make any sense because the, the Messiah's very, uh, you know, task was to set up an eternal kingdom. How can you have a dying Messiah? But yet, there were these other pictures that were painted that spoke of a, a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who was rejected. And as I said, this was so perplexing to the ancient theological minds, the rabbis at the time, that they concluded that there must be two messiahs. There's, they called one messiah ben Joseph because Joseph suffered, so this messiah would suffer and he would die in battle, and then there would come messiah ben David. He would be the one who would reign. That's how they solved the problem. What they didn't realize, there's not two messiahs, there's one messiah and two comings. That's what they missed. And that's what we know. But let me just share with you a few things uh, about the suffering Messiah. Now, although there are several prophecies that we could look at from the Psalms, from Daniel, from Zechariah, and others, I want to stick with Isaiah. And so I'm going to read to you uh, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Some of you are familiar with this chapter. For some of you, it might be new. But listen as I read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Keeping this in mind, this was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And so here's what Isaiah said. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or attractiveness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Listen, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The prophecy of Isaiah. This is the great mysterious prophecy of the suffering servant who dies in the place of, of God's people who have sinned, who bears their iniquities, is wounded for their transgressions. Some years ago, I was traveling in Israel, and I was... Uh, speaking to the person who was guiding our tour, a Jewish man, and we, we were in conversation. And at a certain point, I said, um, I said, can I, re- can I read you a, a passage of Scripture? And he, you know, said, sure, go ahead. So I read Isaiah 53 to him. And then I, I asked him this question. I said, where do you think I just read from? He said, well, obviously, you read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I said, well, I can understand that you would think that. I said, but I read from your prophet, Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. He was completely astounded. He couldn't believe it because it sounded so gospel. It sounded so New Testament. Of course, it sounded New Testament because the things that happened to Jesus that are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were prophesied by Isaiah here. And so, just real quickly, notice a few things. He suffers and dies on behalf of others. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, today there are people who say, this whole thing of a dying Jesus or dying in the place of other people, uh, you know, dying for sin, this was all made up later. This was something that Paul made up. Um, this, this, Jesus didn't have the message that he was going to die for anybody. I, I don't know how these guys missed reading over that in the Gospels, but somehow they did. These are... These are so-called theologians who come up with this stuff. But um, if anybody ever tells you that Paul invented a dying Messiah, just say, no, no, Isaiah invented a dying Messiah. 
700 years before the Messiah came. And Jesus certainly knew that that was his mission. He said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So, he suffers and dies on behalf of others. But there are three little things I want to just quickly point out to you here that I find so interesting. The, the specific details of prophecy. And this is the unique thing about biblical prophecy compared to predictions that have come from other people that are generally uh, very vague. The predictions are vague. They're, they're more or less general. Where the prophecies of the Bible are very, very specific. And the more specific the prophecy is or the prediction is, the more difficult it's going to be to have it happen. Now, I live in California, and if I were to predict um, that in the, uh, you know, next half of the year, California is going to experience an earthquake, um, you know, that wouldn't really be anything astoundingly prophetic because we have earthquakes all the time. But if I said on, uh, you know, September 9th at 7 a.m., uh, there's going to be an earthquake uh, of this magnitude, and it's going to be um, the, 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 cent the epicenter of it is going to be at this location. The more specific I get, uh, the more challenging it, it becomes for this to be, become a reality, if I'm just guessing. So, the Bible's prophecies are very detailed. They're very specific. And, and there's, there's just a couple tucked in here that are, are so interesting to me. It says, first of all, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. The Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And when we go to the gospel accounts and we read about the crucifixion, where do we see Jesus at the crucifixion? He's crucified in between two criminals. He's numbered with the transgressors. And as far as the onlooker would be concerned, he himself would be a transgressor. So he's numbered with the transgressors. But then it says this. It says, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And this is a fascinating one to me. Because Jesus was a, uh, a criminal in the eyes of the state, and because he was condemned by the state, the state had possession of his body after he died, and the state would have disposed of it like they did every other criminal, which meant they take the body and they throw it into the dump and it's consumed in the fire. So that would have been um, where the body of Jesus would have been destined uh, for according to Roman practice. But that's not where the body of Jesus ended up. They made his grave with the wicked. They assigned, him a death, uh, they assigned him a grave with the wicked like they would all criminals. But this one little note, but with the rich at his death, what happened? A man named Joseph of Arimathea who had access to the Roman governor, he came and he asked for the body of Jesus that he might take it. And what Pilate did there was unusual because the state had the power to just simply say, no, <laughs> We're, we'll dispose of the body. Pilate allowed Joseph of Arimathea to take the body. Joseph was a rich man, and he put Jesus in his own family tomb. So just an interesting little insight that um, nobody would have ever even, you know, dreamed up or, or been at all able to bring about its fulfillment uh, naturally. It just is, is another indicator to us that these things were... Uh, written 
by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, in the death of Christ, we have, this is the, the bigger picture of the death of Christ is the death of death. You see, what Jesus came to do is destroy death. People today say, well, you know, what did Jesus really accomplish? I mean, look around the world. Things are still messed up. There's no peace. Uh, there's all kinds of trouble and difficulty. Jesus failed, they say. Well, listen, it's not over yet. Jesus came to first deal with things that we normally don't think about, like sin. Most people don't think sin's a problem in the world. Well, God says that's the root of all the problems. And death is the byproduct of sin. Jesus came to destroy death in fulfillment of the prophecies. Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Listen, God is speaking. He says, O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. God says, I will destroy death. In the 16th Psalm, we have that prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. My flesh will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will show me the path of life. So you see, my point is all of this was told to us in advance. The death and the resurrection of Christ would lay the foundation for the rule and the reign of Christ. The rule and the reign are yet in the future. They're coming. But this foundation had to first be laid. And all of these world-changing events were predicted by the prophets centuries before they happened. So this week as we study the greatest story ever told, the story of the life of Jesus, keep in mind that this is all a fulfillment of what God said would happen. That's, we're reading the fulfillment of the promises. Now, in closing, the promises and the prophecies, first of all, the promises. What were the promises intended to do? And what are they still intended to do today? The promises were given to us as rays of hope to sustain us through the long, dark history of the world. God knew that history would be dark. He knew that there would be death and destruction. He knew that there would be misery and suffering. He allowed all of this to happen. Some people say, well, that's not very fair. Why did God allow it to be happen? Or, well, allow it to happen? Well, I don't know exactly, but know this. He didn't exempt himself from uh, it. He came and participated in it. So maybe that'll uh, alleviate your angst a little bit. He came and he participated in it, but he knew that there would be a long, dark history, and these promises were given as rays of hope so we could look. And I want to tell you just on a personal note, when I read through these Old Testament prophecies, that's exactly what they do. They give me hope. I think, man, you know, it's been a long, dark night of, of man trying to rule over man, but there's a day coming when God is going to set up his kingdom. He gives hope. And then the prophecies were given so we could accurately identify the Savior God would send into the world. So you see, that's what the prophecies are. They're a sketch. So God sketches it out, and in essence, God says, okay, look for this person. And when you see a person in history who matches this sketch, this is the one. This is the Savior. Listen to him. Follow him. 
believe in him, live for him, serve him. And that's what we have in the life of Jesus. Only one life in all history matches the one sketched out for us in the pages of Scripture. Jesus of Nazareth. The prophecies and the subsequent history show us that Jesus truly is the Savior that God sent into the world. And by putting our personal faith and trust in Him, we can have, number one, our sins forgiven. You see, that's our problem. It's the problem that nobody wants to admit. It's the problem that everybody wants to, uh, uh, you know, just dismiss as being any kind of a a reality. But it is. This is the real problem. The real problem is sin. But Jesus died for our sin. And by putting our our, our faith and trust in Him personally, we can have our sins forgiven. And as we have our sins forgiven, we become then the children of God. You see, the problem is we're like, as Isaiah put it, we're like sheep without a shepherd or we're like little children without parents. You know what little children without parents do? They run amok. They go wild. They go crazy. And that's what we've done. But God wants to bring us into His family to make us His children. And in doing that, we enter the kingdom that has already come but is not yet fully established. See, here's the wonderful truth, and some of you, many of you know this already, the kingdom is here. You live in it. You participate in it. You experience many of the blessings and the benefits of it. You know that it's not fully realized. I know it's not fully realized, but we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Before I knew Jesus, I was in darkness. I lived in darkness. Darkness dwelt in me, and my life indicated that. But we've come out of that darkness into His marvelous light. It's not yet fully realized, but we can experience it partially here and now. That's what it is to to be a, a Christian, to be a true follower of Jesus. And so we can know today the life of the kingdom, and Paul expresses the life of the kingdom with this these three words: righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ offers us today. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and a glorious, eternal, righteous kingdom to come in the future. But it's contingent on me trusting Him now. And so, I want to close with this. The greatest story ever told is not just the story of Jesus Christ, but it's the story of our lives, your life, my life, drawn into His life, His will, His plan, His purpose, and His destiny. You see, Jesus entered into our story that we might enter into His story, His eternal story. And you know, the most amazing thing of all is Jesus. He's not just a historical figure, although he is that. He's a living Savior today. He's alive. He's here. 
Many of you know that. Some of you don't yet. I hope you meet him this week. He'll transform your life. He'll bring his story into your story. And he'll make your story part of his story. And you know, it's a story with a great ending. It's a story with the best ending imaginable. But really, there is no ending. It's the never-ending story of God and his great love for his people. And the question really comes down to this. Are you in the story? And the way you become part of the story is by personally receiving Christ. And I emphasize the word personally because it's not, it's not what so many people think. People think, well, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian because I was christened as a baby or I you know, belong to the Church of England or whatever the case might be. But that doesn't really mean anything necessarily. It's a personal thing where you acknowledge you're a sinner and you need the Savior and you ask Him to forgive your sins and come into your life and He does that upon your request. And if you've not done that, you can do that today. You can do that throughout the week. We're going to have some folks up here at the end of our session here this morning. They're going to be up front. They're going to be available to pray with you. And so take advantage of the opportunity. If you're a Christian and you just need some prayer for personal reasons or maybe you're, you need your faith strengthened or, or maybe you're, you've not yet really embraced Christ and you're not part of the story, but you want to be part of this story. Come up and let them know. They, they would be happy to, to help you uh, to open your heart to receive Christ.